0: Hello and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. On this Bad Beats episode, we will explore the human side of real estate investing with a seasoned pro about to make the legendary worst deal of their life. A deal isn't just the investment, it is also the person. Stay with us and learn what it takes to be the best investor. Hi and welcome to the Real Estate Nerds Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Royal-Smith, and I'm very pleased to have with us today Charles Dobbins. He's the multifamilyattorney.com multifamily apartment complex buying specialist. Today, we're going to be doing a worst deals episode, which are my favorite. I mean, I just love it. Love it. The story Mm. of when deals go sideways, because even the best and the smartest and experienced of us have deals that we, frankly, went bad on us. And sometimes we know why. And sometimes it's just old lady luck. So Charles is going to share with us today his story. And so thank you, Charles, for taking the time to sit down with me today and, and share with us. But this must be a very painful side to your life.
1: Yeah, thanks a lot, Scott. I really appreciate it. You're going to make me bring back all these bad memories and suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder all over again. Thank you.
0: Yeah, feel free to send me that therapist bill. Yes,
1: exactly.
0: Yeah, and my copay. Yeah well, expense it to the show. It's not a big deal. Happy.: to do. I hope it's a big budget show. Yeah, I don't know, Charles, it really depends on how much pain you go through. Oh, well, boy, this is, can handle casts of thousands then, I'm sure. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, man. Well Charles, tell us a little bit about like how did you start getting into this multifamily you know investment game, and that kind of led you from the very beginning to start even even thinking about this deal?
1: Yeah. I mean, it wanted to be in the apartment business ever since I was a little kid. And you know, when I got out of college, I took the path of least resistance, which was the insurance business because my family had been in the insurance business for over 50 years and uh, just started doing that. And I tell you, as I always say, if if you have a kid that wants to be in the insurance business and there's something wrong with that child, because it is just, oh my gosh, it's a fallback position, as I always say. So I did that for a couple of years with my family and, and I decided I, I you know I really want to be a lawyer and practice. And so I went to law school and when I got out of law school, I was still making a lot of money in the insurance business. So I decided to stay in the insurance business. Finally, I, I turned 40 and I said, I hate what I do. I dread Sunday nights. Sunday nights were the worst time of the week because it was always followed By Monday morning, and I owned the business. I had thirty-five people working for me, and I hated to go to the office. I can only imagine they hated it as well. And so I, you know, finally told my wife. I said, "I can't do this anymore. I'm going to." put myself in an early grave and she said, What do you want to do? I said, I've always wanted to own apartments. And she says, Well let's do it. And so I sold my insurance business and we started buying apartments. That's what got it started. Did that for many years and, and the market crashed and I had made a lot of friends in the multifamily world and you know they were all in trouble with the properties and the banks taking them back. So they asked me to represent them as an attorney. And that's when I hung out my shingle to represent them legally. And then I came to the realization that there wasn't really much I could do for these investors. The damage had already been done. And one thing I realized was that some of these people should never have gotten into the deals that they were in. And they were obviously given bad advice or didn't have any advice in searching out these deals. I decided to stop representing people legally and start representing them as a coach, a mentor, a consultant. And that's when I started training people on how to buy apartments the right way.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. In terms of, I mean, that's quite the journey of of going through, you know, all the way to coach and and guru now. And and imagine like along the way that you're, there's different like inflection points, right? Of where you have different levels of mastery of the, of the skill set. Like how long did it take you when you first started looking to buy apartments before you feel like you really had a mastery of how those deals work? Well,
1: you know what? I tell you, I didn't. And it's kind of like practicing law. That's why they call it the practice of law. It took me a while, but one of the things that I did was I burned the ships. When I sold that insurance business, I had nothing. I had nothing left to fall back on. This was it. I was going out to do this. So I did what I had to do to make uh, deals happen. In hindsight, some of the deals I did were great deals. I do them again today. And then there were other deals that I wish I had never seen those properties. And today, I can look at a property and tell you exactly what it's going to be like to own that property as an owner and what it's going to take out of you. You know, as I always tell my students, owning a multifamily property changes your life. And you have to know if that property is going to change your life for the better or for the worse. And I can tell just by looking at it.
0: How long did that take, though? Like, how many deals do you think you have to look at before you start having that level of competence? Really have to say several years, but it wasn't. The thing is,
1: what really gave me the expertise was owning and operating. We were our own property management company, and so we ran these properties on a daily basis. And that's what I teach my students. If you're going to be in this business, you have to own and operate. You have to own the property management company. I get into detail on that in that in my classes. But the thing that really taught me the most about properties was owning them and understanding the numbers and knowing what it really costs to run a property. You see, prior to that, you could be pulled by the nasal hairs in any direction by any broker regarding a deal that he's working on if you don't understand the numbers and you really get a good grasp on the numbers when you're running a property like tricks that these guys try to pull, like a C-class property, and they're telling you that the repairs and maintenance budget is $200 per unit per year. Well, I can tell you right now, you can't own a C-class property and only have $200 per unit per year as your budget. It just can't happen. Uh, You know, these types of things, rules of thumb that I've created that brokers will try to put past new investors all the time, and it isn't until you really know what it takes to run a property before you understand what the best thing to do. So you can sit and go through all the classes you want, but if you're not going to crack any eggs, you're never going to understand this business.
0: So sorry, typically, I'd assume that you would be like having people that are just new to real estate investing in general, or especially in a multifamily as like joint venturing or partnering with somebody in their first deal that has all that experience to run through. Oh, Yeah. Are you saying, is that what I do? Yeah, no, I'm just saying, just in general, that's the general advice, right? For anybody that's, how do you get into your first one? We'll find somebody else that has experience, partner with them and learn from them how what it actually takes to run it.
1: Right. And the thing is that most of the classes, these teachers don't tell you that if you're looking at doing a $3 million deal and you've got no experience, the bank's not going to give you a mortgage. You are going to need to, to partner up with what we call a key principle, a KP. And they will help you get across the finish line. Is, you know, I have clients that qualify as KPs all the time, and I introduce them to my new students, and the two of them work together uh, to get approved for the mortgage. But that gives you that experience, and you know, some of the best KPs that I uh, work with really take those new investors
0: under their wing and show them what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. Uh, that's super cool. Yeah, Good way to do it. And that's one of the things that I've always encouraged other people to do. And that's great that you've professionalized it as part of what you do with your your company there. Yeah. So I was wondering, Charles, do you want to go ahead and dive into the, the nitty-gritty of this worst deal.
1: Okay. All right. So this particular deal was a solid C class deal. And as much as the brokers are trying to tell you that the area was being regentrified, this thing was not going to be regentrified in my lifetime. So, but I didn't understand the market all that well. I was just told that this is a good market down in Texas and you should buy there. So we went out, we put together the deal. We negotiated with the seller who also owned many other complexes in that particular area. He was not a state investor. So he's from up in the one of the plain states, owned several like properties in the, that general area. And he was selling us this one. It was 116 units. Now. The way that it had to be purchased was it had to be purchased as an assumption. Now, for those of you that don't understand what that means, that means I have to walk in there and assume the existing mortgage so he doesn't have to pay what I call defeasance penalties or prepayment penalties. So I take on his obligation uh, and that is part of the deal. Now, by doing it that way, there are a lot of restrictions and a lot of fine print that you need to know that I learned the hard way on this deal. But that you, one of the things about an assumption is if this guy's mortgage is a million dollars, then that's the number that I'm taking over, regardless of what the purchase price is. So whereas if I'm looking to buy a new property and I go out and get an 80% loan to value mortgage, well, we know what the mortgage is going to be. But in this particular case, let's say for the sake of understanding these, the, the issues, that the guy had a million dollar mortgage. Now, if I had to put 20% down, we'd just round it up and say that I would have to purchase this property for $1.2 And that means I put 20% down on a million dollar mortgage. But that didn't happen. See, I was such a good negotiator. I negotiated a purchase price of $1.1 million, which means that I only had to come up with 10% down. I only had to come up with $100,000. So I get the million dollar mortgage, I raise $100,000 and I end up owning this property for 10% down. I think, wow, I'm a great negotiator.
0: So yeah. To just stop right there and just to jump in is that I, was like, I love the start to the story so far because yeah. it's one of those highlights of what happens on every deal that we know is going to go sideways always starts looking phenomenal on the phone. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> you're absolutely
0: right. Yeah, because like that is like you're excited. I'm killing it. Everything's oh, yeah. great, right? Yep.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Now, Now, just so you understand, with an assumption, I have to work with his bank. So I may have a relationship with another bank. It's irrelevant. I have to use his bank. So we file an assumption, a uh, loan uh, application with that bank. We start the underwriting process. Now, it's a 30-day inspection, 60-day financing, 90-day close, okay? Okay in the con in the mortgage it clearly states that the mortgage can be assumed and the way it gets assumed is the new person coming in has to is either going to be approved or it's declined by the bank the bank cannot add any additional economic terms to the deal at all so it's either you're approved for the existing mortgage or you're declined that's it Okay, fine. So we sit back and we wait and we go through the 30-day inspection and we look at all the units and everything looks fine. The property is running at a 97% occupancy rate, 3% vacancy. You look at the numbers and this deal is a beautiful, you make so much money every single month. I cannot wait to own this property.
0: So that's part of like all of your piece too, like all the analytics. Of the deal, look like beautiful. Spreadsheet. Oh, exactly.
1: yeah. And these analytics, the mortgage, I mean, the, the occupancy had to be certified by him certifying the rent rolls every single month. And so every single month we'd get updates 97%, 97%. Man, this is great. Now, the problem then happened was that we get past the financing deadline and our $40,000 earnest money is now hard. It's hard. If we don't close on this thing, we have to walk away. And so we have to come up with with some way to make sure, you know, we're still waiting to hear from the bank because the bank doesn't care about my contract with him. They don't care. And that's one thing I learned about an assumption is that when you're doing a typical real estate deal, there are usually two parties involved at the negotiating table, the buyer and the seller. When you're doing an assumption, there's a third party and it's the bank and they don't care about your deal between the buyer and the seller. They don't care. So we get past the financing period. Our money is now hard. And we get a phone call from the bank. And they said, hey, looks like you're going to be approved. And we're like, Yes, perfect. Great. I said, but there's an issue here. I said, what's the issue? He said, you're only putting 10% down. Okay. Yeah. That's because I negotiated a great deal. Yeah. And congratulations. The bank says you did negotiate a great deal, except for the fact that we need you to have more skin in the game. i like, well, what do you mean? How can we possibly have more skin in the game? We've negotiated a purchase price. There is a set mortgage amount. What, what do we do? And they said, well, we're a bank. So we're going to require you to put $200,000 more now these numbers. I'm giving you rounded numbers. The numbers were actually much larger than this. Yeah, we need you to put two hundred thousand dollars into our bank so that we can hold on to it while you own this property. Now what exactly? So doesn't that sound like an additional economic term to you?
0: Yeah. But what were they? If you push them on that though, they're just going to say, "Well, we're just going to deny you the loan."
1: Oh yeah, then you declined. But you just told me I was approved. Yes, and congratulations. But you have to put another $200,000 in the letter of credit with our bank. I said, well, wait a minute. That throws off all of my numbers. That's crazy. He says, well, then you're not approved. But the contract says that it, you have to tell me this. And this went on. We had to extend the closing, keep extending the closing. So for six months, we were under contract. Now, here's one of the next tips I can give you is that my original purchase and sale contract said that we could inspect the property during the first 30 days, and then we couldn't go into the property again. That means for five months, we could not get back onto that property to take a look at what was going on. Do you know what can happen to a multifamily property in five months, Scott? Wow. I can only imagine. You can lose the whole thing. Everyone can move out. But we're still getting these certified rent rolls saying that the property is running at 97% occupied. So we're thinking, hey, this is still a good deal. Maybe, you know, we just go out there and we'll get the the money and we'll we'll make this thing happen. And besides that, if we don't do this, we lose 40,000 bucks. We end up raising the letter of credit, getting the letter of credit, making it all happen. And 30 days later, after we purchased it, I'm in daily communication with my property management company, 30 days later, I called them up and I said, Guys, what the heck is going on? I said, What, what do you mean? I said, You've only collected 50% of the rent this month. We're in a, Charlie, our collections are excellent. I said, You collected half of the rent. 50% of the people have, have paid. Where are the other 47%? He goes, Charlie, we collected from everybody that owed us. We're actually at 100% collections. I said, Well, no, you can't be. He said, No, Charlie. We have never seen the level of fraud on this property as we've seen already. I said, what are you talking about? Are you talking about fraud? He says, Charlie, you don't have 97% occupancy. You've got about 50% occupancy. I said, I've got certified rent rolls for six months saying that I've got the uh, 97% occupancy. And the guy says, no, 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 no. We've been here for all 30 days of your first month. And we've never seen a moving truck move up once. There were not 97% occupied units on this property when you took it over. And it besides that, we have documentation that there was fraud.
0: How did that happen? I mean, is it just as a piece of like you just accepted what somebody told you at face value without having to actually confirm the data? Like,
1: Well, remember, two things. First off, we were getting certified rent rolls. So we were just thinking, hey, this guy's signing off on the rent rolls. He's a good guy. We just have to, you know, that's that must be right. Yeah. And remember, the second part, Scott, was that I didn't write the contract in such a way that I could go back in anytime I wanted and walk the units. Hmm. All of my contracts allow anyone, my, all my students, to go back anytime while we're under contract and walk the units. You have to. Yeah. You absolutely have. To. And now I also have a provision that says we walk the units two days before the close, and if they're not all rent ready. We're gonna get some money back at closing. Yeah. So I said, "What fraud? How can you, you got? You can't just accuse somebody of fraud. You've got to, you know, give me some facts here." He goes, "Oh, we have the evidence." I said, "Well, what evidence do you have?" And he he sends me up about forty leases, and he goes, "Look at these leases." And I said, "Okay, okay, I see it." He goes, "Now look clearly at the address, the name, and the address section of the lease." I said, "Okay, fine. He goes, notice that they are whited out in all the exact same places. Oh, yeah. okay, I see what you mean. But that doesn't prove fraud. He goes, what they did was they would white out a lease from somebody else and hand right in somebody else's name on the lease from another property that the guy owns. I said, wait, how do you know that? How can you prove that? He goes, look at these eight leases. He forgot to white them out. And so I look at it and I say, like, what's polo run apartments? He goes, that's another apartment complex that he owns down the street. So he was taking leases from other properties of his, whiteing out the name, the address, and handwriting in the address of my property to show that he had a 97% occupancy. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Phantom Leases.
0: Phantom Leases.
1: Yep. And that's, and I teach a due diligence course and I teach all the different ways to protect yourself against that from happening. Wow. So, yeah. It's so that was, and then by, you know, we were never, never able to get that property back up to over 70% occupancy. It was a disaster right from the very beginning. Think about the assumption, the added economic terms. They required us to put more money down. Phantom leases. We wrote the contract the wrong way. We did everything wrong on this one, Scott. It was an incredible and expensive learning lesson.
0: Wow, man. Do you like when you're looking back at it as like what you're going through, like while you're in it, do you feel like um, like the excitement of the deal and the great deal that you thought you bought in some way blinds you? into doing the due diligence like you're just yeah you're so excited about it that you
1: yeah also keep in mind that you're so excited to get your first deal done because this is what you've been fighting for you you've sold your insurance business you've got a bunch of friends and family with their faith in you to make this thing happen and you're willing to look at things through rose-colored glasses yeah and I don't. It is now, Scott, I don't believe anything anyone tells me. (laughs) Everything needs to be documented. I need to see it from a third party. So another trick that I teach in the due diligence that I learned from this deal is when you're doing the financial analysis, the first documents you start with are the deposits. You want to see the bank statements because you need to see money going into the accounts from this property to verify that you're actually collecting this cash. That's the only documentation that you can use to verify. Don't take anyone's word for it. You have to see the bank statements. They're an an objective third party providing you, you with the reports, and that's what you're looking for. When you get those deposit statements, if you see any deposits that end in three zeros, that's a problem. Do you know why, Scott? Why is that? Because what rents? how many times do you make a deposit of the daily rents that come in and that's always ending in three zeros? The answer is never. Mm-hmm. Very, very What When you see a deposit with three zeros, that's an owner contribution. That's not rent. Mm. And so you make sure that you do not include that income in there and you got to make sure you want to go back to the guy and say, Hey, why did you have to put $20,000 into the property that month? What was going on? Yeah. So, Stuff like that that you just learn over time by owning and operating, or like you said before, you saddle up with a, with an expert who knows what he's doing, so it doesn't happen to you.
0: Yeah, I'm wondering too about you know like there's I'm sure there's a tons of you know tips and tricks that come into how do you actually execute that kind of deal. The, the one of the things that I'm curious about is is thinking about how do we uh, slow things down when we're excited about a particular deal to avoid things that potentially you might have caught right and yeah i'm wondering if like with your experience going through it now like if you were the yoda talking to that guy and maybe you're not the apartment expert yet but you're just a a wise person what do you tell your younger self there and there do you say hey you know you really need to be approaching this systematically where's your checklist of what you're, you're checking off here you know like what do you tell that person
1: You know, it almost be something on the idea of what makes you think you understand Fort Worth, Texas? Mm. You know, why do you think that this is a great market here? What other properties have you owned in that area? How much research have you done to understand what what the trends are? Why isn't the Section 8 office leasing any units to their, allowing any units to be leased to their uh, clients for this property? Is it on a blacklist? I mean, in hindsight... There were a lot of things that somebody just without being the guru or or the Yoda could have looked at and said, geez, I don't know, this uh, this sounds a little too good to be true. I guess that that would be it is like just having somebody, a wise sage, which let me tell you something, whenever we were out doing a deal and syndicating a deal, there was one investor that we always went to first and he was the toughest guy. And he would look at those financials and rip them apart. And he would you know, call us on everything and make sure that we knew our story. And then you know, most of the time, he invested in our deals. But after we met with him, everyone else was easy. We knew exactly what the right things to say. We knew what the concerns would be for potential investors. Uh, we're, we became very good salespeople of our deal after working with that particular investor.
0: I mean, that's great to have like that as a resource. And one thing that you just touched on is, you know, what makes you think about why would you invest in Fort Worth, right? Is that's like one of those key pieces about like, are you really sure about the assumptions that you're making? I think we can always like ask ourselves whenever we're doing anything: what am I assuming here is true that may or may not be true, and how can we find out if that's right or wrong? You know, that that's kind of applicable in everything, isn't it? That we would do, yeah. You know, your coaching business or or whatever, real estate. I mean, it doesn't really matter, right? Like, Like challenging assumptions is the is the number one way that we actually get to higher level learning. You know, i got to tell you, though, in this
1: particular deal, though, the numbers were always looking right. All the numbers, when we stressed them, when we uh, tried them in different variations, the numbers always worked. What didn't work was the fraud that was involved in the inducement. There was uh, the issues with the lender's. Like, let me give you another example. And this is something that just happened to one of my students just this week. Uh, He was looking to do an assumption deal and he made an offer. But the problem was in the broker's offering memorandum, there were two lines and that both lines said the same thing. And all it said was assumable FNMA loan, Fannie Mae loan, assumable Fannie Mae loan. That's all it said. It didn't say that you had to assume it. It didn't tell you what the outstanding note was or what the interest rate was or how many years remaining on the term. That's all the broker said in his offer, uh, in his offering memorandum. So we made an offer, but not one that we, we were planning on assuming the existing mortgage. So the guy comes back and he says, hey, we accept your offer, but it's only good if you assume the mortgage. And I'm like, wait a minute. You never said we had to assume the mortgage. Well, yeah, we wrote that line in there. Yeah, you wrote mine in there, but you didn't tell us anything else that would be important in the analysis. If you want us to assume this, we have to go back to the drawing board and plug in the right numbers. But here's the other thing. And Scott, this is something that you don't learn. You only learn by doing. And this is something that got us, that was another thing that got us caught on this deal down at Fort Worth. I asked the broker for my client. I said, how much does the seller have in reserve replacements right now? And he said, hold on a second, I have that number. It's $298,000. And he said it like like he was proud. Like, isn't that great? There's $298,000. Scott, let me ask you something. What does that mean
0: to a buyer when you're doing an assumption? Uh, It could mean a few different things, but like I would definitely definitely ask, why do you need that much?
1: No, no. So here's what it means. Let's say you were doing this deal, Scott. This is what it would mean to you. So that $300,000 was accumulated by the seller, you know, by the reserve replacements, which is a number that the bank sets that you have to reserve every single month, a little bit every month for the capital improvements of the property. And so it sounds like this, and usually depending upon how the property is running, you can go and draw down that account or you can let it build up. Well, it looks like this guy built it up. And he built it up to $300,000. Now, if you walked in there, Scott, with just a typical purchase and sale contract that doesn't speak to the issues of an assumption, at the closing table, do you know what happens to that $300,000? Is the uh, the seller going to keep that? The seller gets to keep it. Mm. That means the bank cuts the seller a check for $300,000. And then do you know what the bank does? They look at you. They turn to you and they say, hey, Scott, we need $300,000 of your money now to replace our replacement reserves. And you're like, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on a second here. Why do I have to pay the $300,000? You just gave it to him. Yeah, because it's his money. Well, Yeah, but I'm assuming his mortgage. I don't have to. If I had gone out and gotten a new mortgage all by myself, I wouldn't have to come up with $300,000 for that. Why do I have to pay $300,000? Well, sorry. You got to come up with three hundred, or we're not closing. That's how an assumption works.
0: That is wild. I bet people are making bad deals left and right, and the multi—they have no idea of what's going on. We should, we should probably do like an entire segment on multi <laughs> multifamily worst deals and best deals. Oh, my gosh! Yeah, don't oh, believe me. After, after two thousand and seven, there are a ton of them. <laughs> oh, Charles, thats phenomenal man I, I, I really want to thank you for coming on the show today and sharing with us like all these insights and how many different ways people could experience their worst deal, apart from just your room there. And then, Charles, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: They can go to my website, multifamilyinvestingacademy.com. Uh, they can email me at info at And we've got uh, tons of free training for you. And, and as I always say, don't do a deal without me going forward. If you've never done one before, don't do one without me. As you know, Scott, as an attorney, even though I don't represent anyone legally, as an attorney, a practicing attorney in Massachusetts, I still have to... Uh, when I provide non-legal services, I still have to look at and feel like an attorney, so I'm always looking out for my client's best interests.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Charles, and, I, and I'm sure you do. I would uh, just parrot that in saying that you know, if you haven't done a deal before and it's your first one or maybe even your first two, is to find somebody really experienced to work with on that to to have a joint venture with. And if you're looking for the multifamily, and you liked what you heard today. You know, reach out to Charles, and I'm sure he'd be happy to connect you up. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, great, Charles. And just want to say thank you guys for, for listening to this show. It's a real estate nerds podcast. It was, it was a, uh, a bad beat. It's a worst deal episode. And uh, <laughs> we will uh, be in touch. I can hear shortly. And Charles, I hope you have a great day and, and enjoy your uh, amazing weekend here. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, I hope I don't make the Hall of Fame on this one, but I probably will. It's pretty good, Charles. You're a pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Thanks, all right, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Absolutely. Bye, everybody. Thanks. Thanks. That's all for this Bad Beats episode. I'm your host, Scott Royal-Smith with the Real Estate and Earth Podcast. Did you see yourself in any part of that story? I know I did. If you enjoyed the show, leave a review to help clue in the sleeping masses of what they need to know and what we all need reminders of. Do your good deed for the day. Thanks, and I'll see you again soon.